there were so many players who were actually involved in trying to manipulate information around the election that it was just sort of a tsunami of false information. So you had you weren't able to look at one specific entity or actor and say that, oh, you know, it was the Chinese or the Iranians and they ran this disinformation campaign trying to boost this candidate over another candidate. There was so much crap that was out there, some foreign, but most of it domestic, that I think it, it just became this sort of cesspool of false information. So welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, we're talking to Brett Schaefer, the Media and Digital Disinformation Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. He's also appeared in the New York Times, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, been interviewed by NPR, PBS, and the BBC. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for talking to me again. It's been been a few years. Um, before we get started, I have to plug two things. First of all, my book, which I was writing at the time we spoke last, is now out, uh, Brexit, the Establishment Civil War. If you want to learn more about what we're going to discuss today, about how um, social media and technology is disrupting democracy, please go and buy it. And also our sponsor, ExpressVPN, you can get 12 months with 35% off and a 30-day 30, 30 money-back guarantee. So, Brett, how much worse have things got um, for the state of democracy since we last spoke? It's been about three years. Well, I mean, things weren't great when we spoke three years ago either. I mean, we were we were coming right out of Brexit, uh, election of Donald Trump. I mean, we weren't exactly in a great place then. Uh, you know, clearly, I don't think things have improved. And, you know, COVID has just thrown a little accelerant on the fire as well. So from the U.S. perspective, I mean, I guess if you're being an optimist, you could look at this last election and say there's been a bit of a course correction of sorts. Uh, however, uh, I think if you look at how that election went down and the aftermath of the election, uh, it's not really a, a source of optimism for the future. I mean, there's roughly a quarter of Americans who, who just do not believe that the election was legitimate and believe it was stolen. And that's obviously a much bigger problem than saying, hey, my preferred candidate didn't get elected or there was some mis or disinformation that led to people voting for one candidate over another uh, based on uh, you know, false promises. You know, People do not uh, fundamentally trust that elections, uh, that their vote in election will be counted and that elections are legitimate. Like That's the bedrock of democracy and it all starts to crumple from there. So I, I think just looking from the U.S. perspective, uh, we're not in great shape and there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, one of the things that I keep discussing with 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 friends of mine is is that. Like, we can't believe that that given given how many how, how much problems we know there are with um, just any form of technology in that it's it's almost always hackable or can go wrong, or there's always something you can question about it. Like we, like we honestly can't believe that you use like the, the voting machines that you do, like either electronic or like electronic machines to count the votes or tally them. Like, cause we, we have everything done by hand in the UK. Like we count all of our, like all our ballots are counted by hand, even in Northern Ireland where we have like a, a super complicated um, like proportional representation system where we have to like number our preferred candidates one through well, we're meant to number it one through however many people there are there. 
So like we count the first preference votes and then we split them all up and we count the second pre preference votes. And like honestly, it shocks me that 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 you still have electronic voting machines given like the amount of problems and questions that could be raised over it. Like is is there anyone discussing that that you've seen? Yeah, no, I mean, there, there have been a ton of discussions and there were uh, a ton of improvements actually made from 2016 to 2020. So a lot of states and in particular, most of the swing states, which, you know, if you follow U.S. elections, it's really mm -hmm. about 10 states. I think all of those states actually implemented paper ballot backups. So there at least were some protections put in place. So when they do the post-election audits, you can go back and actually find a paper record trail so that it's not all just electronic. The other benefit is actually the sort of American uh, dysfunction or fragmentation of our voting process. You know, we don't have one election system. We essentially have 10,000. I mean, every local county administers their own election. Like, yes, they are, there's, there's some standards set at the federal level, and then the states kind of conduct them. Um, but they were so different from state to state, and again, even county to county, that there's not like one voting machine being used. There are many. So the theory is, yes, they're all a bit vulnerable, but it's harder to hack an entire election because you're having to get into so many different systems that like you certainly can get into one, you can cause problems at a local level. And clearly, if you're talking about the, the optics of the election, that would be enough to get people to uh, <laughs> really contest the results. But there actually have been some improvements made over the last four years to try to shore up our election, shore up our election system. That doesn't mean they're still not vulnerable and that there's a lot more work to be done, but it, it has gotten a little bit better. Like the, the two different, like, okay, so in 2016, um, there was the, once, once Trump had won, there was the, the narrative that the election had been stolen or, or hacked. Um, by the Russians, and then in this case, you, we've had the the narrative that it was um, hacked or stolen by some combination of the Democrats and the Chinese Communist Party, and maybe the Venezuelans. Um, <laughs> I'm just telling you what the story is. Um, but uh, essentially, like we're talking about two different types of, of hacking or, or disruption. Right. Here. So we're talking about like the, the physical like idea that people had changed votes in certain uh, machines or like brought in fraudulent ballots or used fake addresses. And then there's the, the idea is that um, that Russia had, had hacked the election through um, disinformation propaganda they used like bots and trolls online to kind of stir up um and and sort of pour fire on onto hot hot button uh, hot button issues why do you think that, that we haven't really concerned ourselves with that side of things in the 2020 election given that we we know that that sort of thing is still possible, still going on, and is potentially even more pervasive. Like, why do you think that was essentially ignored or has been? Well, the perception hacking side of things, which is, of course, what uh, you know the issue was with Russia in 2016, there was actually a lot of coverage of that in the lead up to the election. And there was a lot more focus on that both within the government and outside the government. I mean, my organization looks at that. Many others were stood up in the, in the four years between the 2016-2020 election. And you had at the Department of Homeland Security, you had CISA, which was set up specifically to look at that. So you had a lot more people paying attention to that issue. So it got a ton of coverage in the lead up. 
But you're right. It, it obviously did not get the kind of coverage afterward that like the actual sort of hacking narrative got, or hacking isn't even the right term. This is the sort of stolen election narrative. I think part of the problem uh, or part of the reason that there was this sort of shift in narrative is that there were so many players who were actually involved in trying to manipulate information around the election that it was just sort of a tsunami of false information. So you had you weren't able to look at one specific entity or actor and say that, oh, you know, it was the Chinese or the Iranians and they ran this disinformation campaign trying to boost this candidate over another candidate. There was so much crap that was out there some foreign, but most of it domestic, that I think it, it just became this sort of cesspool of false information where people weren't kind of, people were unable to uh, disentangle where the false information was coming from. So it's not as if they're, they're, <laughs> the information space was better this time around. It certainly was <laughs> not. It was much, much, much worse. Mm. It was just, you were able to kind of isolate what Russia did to a degree in 2016, where now that felt like a drop in the ocean of false information. And, and so I think that's why that narrative hasn't gotten as much coverage. And then of course, you know, it's, it's part of it is signaling from the top. So when President Trump in the lead up to the election and certainly after the election was saying that, you know, the, the election was stolen, that machines were manipulated. There were some of these crazy conspiracies, as you mentioned, that it was the ghost of Hugo Chavez who somehow was pulling the strings. That just kind of took over. So it was a little bit less about the sort of the narratives and the perception hack and a little bit more about actual manipulation of vote tallies, especially around mail-in voting, which of course became a much more prominent thing because of the coronavirus. Mm. I mean, do you think that's the way that we're just our, our world is going to exist now? Is like you, you described it as that like cesspool of, of false information. Like, is that is that just what we're going to have to wade through on like a day to day basis? I think so, um, or at least in the near term. I mean, obviously, I want to be optimistic and hope solution down the road because it's not a very pleasant world to live in, uh, honestly, where the information online is just untrustworthy, everyone feels like it's being manipulated, our sense of an objective truth starts to erode. But, you know, this is one of the things that we talked about after 2016 is like, yes, we knew what the Russians did, whether or not it was effective is I think still open to debate. But one of the things we highlighted is like, it was kind of sophisticated, but it kind of wasn't. I mean, the troll operation out of St. Petersburg, the stuff they were putting out was not some sort of psyops it was not at a sort of psyops level where you then looked at, okay, though, they definitely had some impact. So you're having anyone now who has any sort of political motivation, who has uh, economic motivation, any sort of cause they care about, looks at the sort of Russian roadmap from 2016 and says, like, I can do that for way, but for, for cheap, I can probably do it better. If they're domestic within the US, they're unlikely to be. Um, you know, if you have any level of sophistication, they're unlikely to be caught by the social media companies because they're looking at domestic actors. So what we were concerned about, what we saw was this sort of proliferation of bad actors who would see how cheap, how easy, how effective this is, and would launch their own sort of disinformation operations. And I, so I think what we're going to see is this sort of democratization of influence campaigns, info ops. But also what we have seen is the commercialization of it. So now you do not have to be technically sophisticated 
to run essentially your own sort of troll farm or your own kind of bot spamming campaign. There are plenty of companies that you just need to Google to find who will run these campaigns for you. Is that going to swing a national election? No. But if you're talking down at the like local level, if you've got some mayoral race, if you have a, a ballot measure, that people don't go into it with any sort of preconceived notions of, of you know, what they believe in. It's very different from a national election where people are kind of Republicans, they're Democrats, very hard to change their opinions. If you're talking about an issue that people don't know much about. California, for example, every year has like 20, 30 different ballot measures. Nobody knows what they're about. They're very complicated. They're written by special interests. Nobody knows what they're voting on. So it's all about the information out there. I think what we're going to see in the future is just these massive professional disinfo campaigns targeted at these you know, smaller elections, again, these ballot measures, and those can have a huge impact. So that's my concern now going forward is like everyone has learned over the past four years that if you want to manipulate the truth, if you want to manipulate voters, it's really not that difficult. Yeah, I mean, like, do, do you really think that there's, so you mentioned that you don't think this, like, sort of targeted trolling campaign could swing a national election. Are you familiar with, uh, familiar with the idea of um, Trevor's axiom? I'm not, no. Okay, so uh, um, I actually wrote about this in my book. This is an excellent opportunity to plug it. <laughs> uh, and I am fairly, I, I honestly haven't been able to find um, an earlier source of this term than or an earlier explanation of this term than than south park um they did okay. an absolutely stunning um explanation of how it works i'll put the it's like a 30 second video i'll put it in the link uh, below but essentially they they say that like it, all all that it requires to like blow up certain hot button issues and turn them into national like co national conversations is like the right trolling so like all you have to do is like abuse one person and it doesn't even have to be like someone like specifically bad, but all you're trying to do is like get someone to respond to that in such a self-righteous way that other people who may not agree with the original troll jump on the other person and it just like explodes out with, with people just being hypocritical or self-righteous or stupid or, or you know, provocative for the fun of it or all just like misconstrued in the 140, 280 character replies that, that we get. And that essentially we're miss, the, 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 the thesis is basically that I think we might be like missing how, how much blowing something up with just like a tiny amount of influence can, can actually affect a national like conversation. Um, one of the examples I use in my book is there was a, there was, um, a couple of like terror attacks during the 2017 or in the run up to the UK 2017 uh, election. And one guy had tweeted uh, this troll, I think it's uh, Lone Star something. Um, he had tweeted a picture of this, like uh, this woman in a burqa or in a, a headdress, like walking past like a victim or someone who had been like almost hurt or hurt by in, in the attack. And it would like the the caption was like oh here here look this person's just walking by ignoring you know british good british citizens who have been hurt by the victims of terrorism and it turns out she was on her phone like calling an ambulance um yeah no i i, I know that image yeah yeah and and it blew up and the next day it was on the front page of the daily mail um so like are, are you that confident that these things can like blow up to to affect no 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 not at all no to be clear i i sort of meant these these 
kind of for-profit, uh, you know, spend a thousand bucks, get a company in Belarus or the Philippines to run this sort of low-grade troll operation for you. Right, okay. But no, what you, what you pointed out, I, I agree with entirely. And it's one of the issues that we have struggled, I think, to get across to people uh, because everybody is looking for the sort of cause and effect of a disinformation campaign and saying, uh, often looking at metrics that I think are completely flawed and particularly on social media saying, well, like, you know, this account had 250 followers and was only retweeted 20 times, you know, looking at engagement metrics as our measure of effect uh, of the influence of the campaign, I think it is, is so deeply, deeply flawed because you know what we talk about is often the sort of term information laundering and the ability to put a piece of information out there. And the original piece of information doesn't need to get uh, a ton of traction on its own. It just, as you pointed out, it needs to find the right person or group who take it and run with it. And then it kind of gains momentum on its own. It becomes this sort of organic movement. Uh, I mean, astroturfed, but like it takes a life of its own. And that's why it's so, so difficult to get to the impact question. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times over the last four years, we've been asked by journalists, like, did this, does this matter? Did this have any impact? And often it's, I don't know, because it's impossible to, to judge. I mean, you could look at the end results of saying like, this campaign looked to get this person elected, that person got elected. There's a causation correlation issue there. But then there's often the, the efforts to kind of minimize a campaign by saying like, well, you know, this is an obscure website, uh, doesn't get a lot of traffic. Very hard to track though, you know, one person sees it, that plants a sort of seed in their mind, they do a bit of their own research, they, they put their own spin on it. And then it's the second article that causes the real accelerant uh, and causes a movement to take hold. So no, to be clear, I, I do think trolling campaigns, even kind of low level trolling campaigns uh, can be effective enough to, to at least impact national elections or national campaigns. Um, but I, you know, what I was saying is more that a lot of this stuff is not really intended to do that. And most of it is run by people who are not particularly sophisticated, but it's always tough to measure the impact of the campaign. Hmm. I mean, um, Tim Poole talks a lot about the, the idea of uh, fifth generational warfare, that like the, the, the idea that, that nations will engage in like physical war in, in the fashion that we've seen in history, like even up to like the the Vietnam the Vietnam War or Iraq or even like anything like that, where physical troops are on the ground, and he basically thinks that that those days are gone essentially, um, and that we're we're engaged in this like yeah this this type of like information war with with we we have no idea who like in in that kind of context like who where concerns you more is it like russia or is it china or is it say like our our own citizens or or governments like where is the biggest threat do you think right now uh i'll give a cop-out answer and say all of the above but <laughs> if i'm weighing them i would say it is our own governments but more citizens our own citizens our fellow citizens so, I, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but I think it's true. When people live in a society that they feel is equitable and just and they trust their government and they feel like they are being represented, these external threats become less of a threat. 
right? I mean, particularly if you're looking at more of this sort of Russian style campaign, which is to amplify divisions and that kind of thing, like that is just not going to be effective. If you don't have individuals on the ground in a targeted country who have these real, uh, real or perceived grievances that they're able to exploit. So like, I look at the domestic issue as being the far bigger issue. And, you know, <laughs> everyone always says when we have these conversations, like, we need to like, uh, improve trust in government and, uh, you know, solve some of these cohesion issues. Obviously, that's way easier said than done. But of course, that is the underlying issue that allows foreign actors to, you know, exploit those things. Of the two, if you're looking at Russia and China, I mean, Russia's way better at information warfare right now than China, at least globally. I mean, China is, I think, effective in its, its own sort of backyard to a degree. But if you look at sort of Russian versus Chinese trolling efforts that have targeted the US, I mean, it's, they're not even close in terms of sophistication. So in the near term, again, this is sort of a, it was an original term uh, or, or sort of concept three or four years ago now, but it'd be cliche. But looking at Russia as the sort of category three hurricane that can cause a lot of damage in the near term, uh, but doesn't kind of fundamentally alter, uh, you know, the sort of global interest in the way that China is more like climate change. They have the ability to really kind of rewrite the rules. Uh, and they have levers that Russia just does not have in terms of their economic levers. So I look at China's the bigger long-term threat in general. Uh, Russia is the bigger threat in the near term, just because I think they're much, much better at information warfare than the Chinese right now. Uh, but, you know, the Chinese certainly have the capacity, they have the AI uh, capabilities to radically uh, improve, for lack of a better term, over the next several years. But to go back to your original question, like, my concern is always domestic more than anything. And when we were looking at the 2020 election, this is the thing we were kind of trying to stress over and over is, yeah, you got to be concerned about the Russians, the Chinese, I mean, I, to some degree, the Venezuelans, the Iranians, but like the real threats are going to come within. And that's obviously what happened. I mean, it it like becomes this, this there's this weird line that we're going to have to try and walk if if we attempt to, to do it between like allowing things like say like where people allowing people to like spread and post information about like the the secret internal war within the the, the government between the 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 breakaway government and the you know intelligence agencies and some guy called q telling everyone what's going on um and, and like the ability for like or people just to lie generally um and and sort of claim it is is totally true and on the other end of it, like say there's there's like the whole other the whole like flip side of it is where people who are promoting like genuine truth seem in some case to be getting banned, like like Project Veritas, who who I know have made some mistakes, but they're just posting like whistleblowers things from inside social media firms, like they're gone from Twitter. Like Brett Weinstein's Articles of Unity um account that was promoting like rejecting the two-party system, banned from Twitter like there's there's this weird thing where people trying to there's 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 like attacks coming from both sides where you got we're like we're trying to figure out like how to deal with like the mass amount of like the cesspool of of disinformation as we described it and still like retain some sort of like freedom of speech rights on online like where where do you guys kind of propose that we start with with trying to even just like begin to regulate these companies that are now more powerful than most nations? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the regulation of social media question, I think, is going to be the big thing to watch over the next two to three years in the Biden administration and where they take the, the sort of conversation from where it's been. And <laughs> I, I don't think the U.S. is going to be the leader on this. And clearly they have not been to date. I mean, the European Union, the U.K. Ha have been way more forward leaning for better or worse in trying to regulate social media. The conversation in the U.S. is so dysfunctional, frankly. Um, I don't see huge room for improvement there because, as you pointed out, the two sides, really it's, it's almost three sides, but they're coming from like polar opposite uh, places here where the Republican position on this is, is more or less social media companies are not the arbiters of truth. They shouldn't be kicking people off Twitter. Who's Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg to say, uh, you know, who has a microphone in, in public debate? Where on the left, they're more concerned, obviously, about getting rid of all the bad stuff. And oftentimes, I think looking past some of the negative externalities that you pointed out, that also include of like a lot of these bans, I think, sometimes are actually justifiable, but they create this narrative of big tech overreach that gets a lot of people who are more in the center uh, drifting to the right. And, you know, we saw this after the election with the migration of a bunch of conservatives to parlor to these sort of alt platforms. So you're going to have this balkanization, I think, of Internet platforms, all of which purporting to support different different sort of interpretations of what free speech is. And so the like filter bubbles we talked about are going to get much, much worse. But when you go back to the regulation question, so in the US context, as I said, there's sort of three points of view here. There's actually the libertarian point of view, which says, hey, these are private companies. They can do whatever they want to do. And if you don't like it, go join a different platform. You have no right to be on Facebook. Uh, nobody gave you the right to have a Twitter account. And you know, let the market sort of determine which platforms are more viable. And then as we discussed, you have this sort of left-right position that are oftentimes a little bit dysfunctional on the right. Honestly, their position makes a little bit less sense when you kind of drill into it. I mean, I think it's a very popular position to say, like, look, who are these unelected guys in Silicon Valley to take down the president's account? Uh, I mean, that is a radical, radical step. But they've been opposed to any sort of antitrust regulation that would reduce the power of these companies. And they've also been in favor of getting rid of Section 230, which we can talk forever about that. And of course, if you remove Section 230, the platforms are probably going to double down on their content moderation because then they're going to be liable for things that are posted that are potentially libelous. So I don't have a huge amount of optimism that we're going to see a government solution, at least in the US, over the next couple of years. Um, and part of the problem, again, is it's a, like, the baseline of the conversation is is really screwed up here. Um, you know, very rarely at the government level are you having like actual substantive debates about like, look, content moderation has to exist at some level. Like we have seen what have what's happened on platforms where that doesn't exist. And on the other hand, like, yeah, it, it should be, I think, looked at as a problem that you have companies who can decide not only who you vote for or the causes you support, but what you buy, uh, you know, basically everything that are, are just not regulated at all. So I think the solution is to get away from this uh, 
you know, ad hoc content by content, account by account debate over whether a takedown was legitimate or not, and start looking at the architecture issues. So the ad ecosystem, algorithms, and data. Data probably being the most important, but I'd put ads up there as well, where you then get to the structural issues that exist with these companies, where that's more of like how you regulate the banking system. Like, are there algorithms fair kind of thing, which I know that's, that's simplifying things because often people are like, well, how do we know what Google's algorithm is promoting? Like, I don't think Google knows what their algorithm is promoting because there's hundreds of algorithms that go into what we see in our news feeds when we query a subject. But I do think there has to be some government regulation there, especially around data. I mean, data is such a valuable currency. It can be manipulated in so many ways if we're talking about AI improvements for nation states. I mean, the fact that you have these sort of biometric companies, so companies that do these kind of DNA analysis that have no sort of oversight whatsoever. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's fundamental issues there that I think are where regulation should be going. But unfortunately, the conversation tends to be stuck in, well, this tweet was taken down and this tweet wasn't. And there's hypocrisy there because this appears to be supporting a right-leaning cause or a left-leaning cause. Like, I don't think we're ever going to get to a very productive place if that continues to be the sort of baseline of our conversation. Because like, you're talking about millions of posts a day. There's always going to be uh, you know, some bias there, individual cases that are not going to be right. And right now, we're just not focusing on the bigger picture issues. Like We're spending all of our time on these kind of one-off things that I just don't think is very productive. I mean, like I'm, I am, I am sympathetic to the argument that like people that, that there shouldn't be like a handful of billionaires deciding what what people can and can't see. Um, but one of the things that I spoke to Kyle Taylor at, um, about, who is the the founder of Fair Vote UK, and they're talking about they're trying to campaign to get the the government to legislate on these kind of issues, and he said, look, we already have like speech laws set down in in law and in america you've got the, the the first amendment and you've got a whole bunch of case law associated with that and that we should we don't we don't need to have this debate really because we've mostly already had it about what's okay to say and what's not um we just need to decide how transparent we want these companies to be about their like ban and review processes and and give people like the right to an appeal and make them essentially apply their own rules fairly um but i really i really wanted to go to to something you you, you mentioned there about the ad model because this is something like again i mentioned in my book where i talked about like at the start of the internet we basically made this decision that like subscription models weren't where we wanted to go mm-hmm. and that we decided that uh, like our data and um adver- like based on an or an advertising model based on our data was the way forwards because it was free um and like I, I, I correct me if i'm wrong here but i think you were essentially making the argument that if we were to review the way in which like facebook or twitter or google make their money based on advertising and based on like harvesting as much of our data as possible and wanting to keep us on their platform as long as possible that perhaps that would solve some of the problems of the, the the way in which they moderate content because right now it's aimed at keeping as many people on the platform as possible and by removing a few people who provide who draw a lot of controversy you can you know make it a safer space 
for, for some people, therefore keeping them on longer and making more money. Whereas if we move to a subscription-based model, we would be removing that need for Facebook to keep us or Twitter or whatever on as long as possible and therefore would actually help solve that issue. Is that what you were saying? Well, I think the problem with the subscription-based model is we've now, we've now become accustomed to the free model. <laughs> it's just going to be really, really hard uh, to convince people like, hey, you now have to pay $5 a month for your Facebook account. Even if that improves your experience dramatically, like people don't like going from free to paying for something, even if it improves the service. So what I was talking about, I mean, I think it's a debate we can certainly have. And I mean, there, there have been plenty of people, including some early Facebook investors who've said that's the model they should be going towards. What I was looking at more is, is the issue of like third-party ad tech and the fact that so many of these sort of for-profit disinfo operations, webs, you know, networks of websites, and just sort of junk news sites. I mean, sites that don't have any kind of political agenda behind them. They're just trying to make money. Those are just being financed by companies who have no idea that they're financing those operations because, of course, you know, the, the sort of ad placements are just determined by algorithms. Yes, there are a few sort of opt-out. Uh, there's an opt-out ability at some level. But what we're looking for is more of a transparent model around third-party ad tech, but also the walled garden advertising on Facebook and Twitter and others that would allow A, advertisers to make more responsible or at least informed decisions about where their ad money is going, but also allow you know, public interest groups to have a better idea about who is actually funding what so they can kind of, you know, these public pressure campaigns, uh, things like that. Like right now it's a black box and there's just no real ability for advertisers or consumers to understand uh, you know, who is being supported by whom because nobody knows because there's about 15 different steps in this process and a bunch of different companies and everybody, you know, there's a huge amount of ad fraud but everyone's kind of got their hand in another person's pockets and nobody is dealing with that issue. But if you got to the sort of core issue of, of advertisers going back to actually sponsoring um, credible journalism, legitimate journalism, I think you start at least peeling off some of the edges of the problem. But also, you know, as you mentioned, if Facebook were and Google were forced to be a little bit more transparent about how things are monetized on their platform, I, again, I think that that starts working towards an internet which may not be less toxic, but at least people have a little bit more control and understanding about how things are being funded and can make more informed choices. Do you see the the like the future of the, of, of like social media, internet, like news dissemination and whatnot? Like there's there's kind of two obvious paths we can go down at this point. Like we could, things can become more centralized. And, and like more of our information can come from like a handful of outlets, say Google, Twitter, Facebook, um, and they'll kind of continue to expand until one of them becomes Skynet and then we all are enslaved. Um, or there's uh, quite a few people pushing like a more decentralized idea. Like there's people starting to move towards things like locals or there is... Um, site that for the life of me is is uh escaping me the name that um i listened to tim pool talking about it is essentially like a 
like an RSS feed that that compiles stuff you post online, but it's linked to the blockchain, so therefore it never goes away. Um, and it's like everyone has their own like little version of it, and and essentially they're they're talking about creating more like um like almost like a MySpace sort of style like way of of um of 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 having social media where everyone would have their own little individual page that would never be deleted that no one was responsible for except you and like for me it seems to be like that those are the two sort of potential avenues in which we can go down like which one do you think is more likely i don't know it's it's a good question i mean going back uh, my space model is like you know that was that was the first social media site i was on as well and and i've never been personally a huge social media user but in the early days of social media that like it was appealing to me i mean i i sort of got it it was a way it was i think what it was intended to be of individuals able to connect with friends and see what they're doing and like yes there's social problems there but you had less of this issue that we're seeing now of it just being a place where we're bombarded with uh you know everything from disinformation to just like very uh toxic points of view that are tailored specifically for you and I, like i don't find my social media experience generally to be uh, enjoyable at this point. So it's like, do we want to revert back to what it was and what it was meant to be? But I think the question that you raised, you know, initially of like, this is also, this, this does go to kind of the ad problem that we were discussing, um, but a bigger issue of, of where I think Facebook and, and Google are moving towards that I understand as being concerning when you talk about, okay, we're going to prioritize authoritative uh, pieces of information or outlets. So, you know, when people run searches, they're going to get the BBC and New York Times and other sort of credible journalism outlet. Like, that makes sense. But what you don't want to see happen is the sort of destruction of some really great citizen journalists and in independent alt media outlets. And so there's this real tension there of like wanting to finance a more diverse, credible pot of information or journalists. Uh, while at the same time not wanting to create a, uh, a financing model where it's almost impossible for some of these startups to compete. And I think, so that's, that's a real concern in general as we move forward as well. And I honestly, I, I, I don't know the answer there. It's just a clear tension that you don't want to just say like, look, you have all of these you know, weird blogs that are presenting themselves as being in Tennessee, but they're actually run by like political operatives and they're pushing out these sort of partisan you know, half truths all the time. Like, yeah, we want to get rid of those or at least minimize like those being the things that are showing up in our feeds, but we don't want to create the system like the only thing you're going to be able to see is you know, BBC, Washington Post, CNN, because I think that destroys, again, the, the good parts of the early 2000s internet, where you did see this explosion of citizen journalism. So I, I don't know the answer there, but I think that that is the great tension of like, we want to get to a place where you look at the top 10 most shared URLs on Facebook, and eight of them aren't these just sort of junk news sites, and you're not having your aunt sort of bombard you with these just... <laughs> like uh, absolutely insane stories that come out of these outlets. You're like, I mean, do you know what this site is kind of thing? Well, at the same time, we don't want to get to a thing where it's like, we only are going to have 10 sources of information that somebody has determined to be credible and that's it. 
on these platforms because one, I just don't think that's a good thing in general. Two, I think you're going to see mass migration to alt platform sites where there's going to be more radical viewpoints. I mean, when you cut off sources of information that people trust, whether they should trust them or not, they're going to go searching for them. And they often go searching for them in darker and darker places. So I don't think that that is a good model to adopt either. Mm. It definitely kind of ruins the like if there's a, if there's say like five news outlets or ten news outlets that that are the authority, then like anything anything that's not them just dies, and therefore it's like it's the it's the same sort of like argument that people make for like free markets in in almost everything, right? That like you need if you if you get bad at your job, say you're the BBC or say you're CNN. And, you know, like half the country thinks that you're just fake news, that you should start to probably suffer if, you're, if your coverage is that bad or if you're not actually providing journalism anymore. You're just providing like outrage, clickbait, political theater, right? Um, which uh, arguably they are. <laughs> but yeah, but, you know, that that's the tension. I, I think the, the major thing we have to get back to is funding local news outlets like in the u.s those have just been destroyed and so you know every 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 study has shown that people trust local journalism more than they trust these sort of national international outlets because there's no real touch points that they have with those outlets and so that whether real or perceived there there's this sort of corporate agendas, political agendas behind them that is quite different from your local news outlet where it's the guy that you see at your kid's soccer game. And, you know, there's just more trust in the information coming there. And those have just been obliterated or taken over by these sort of monolithic corporations. So they're, they're local, but they're not really local because they're owned by the same place and they're given uh, pieces of content to run. So I think that and I mean, there have been a few models that have outlined how we can do this, but that's one of the things that I think we need to get back towards where we do have credible journalists. So these are professionals. This is their career and they suffer when they put things out that turn out not to be accurate. But we don't go to a place where we say, well, there's only 10 outlets we're going to deem to be credible. So I think the solution there is, is really funding professional news outlets at the local level um, so th that would be the tension, the, the way I deal with that tension of just not saying that like, okay, every news outlet that pops up online is treated equally based on clicks and engagement. We've seen where that goes and it's not good because it fuels the sort of rage journalism that we've seen in the junk news. But I don't think we also want to go to the thing of like, all right, here are the 10 national news outlets that have gotten the check mark and that's what you're going to see. So we got to find the middle ground there. And I think the solution is finding a way to fund local um but professional independent news outlets do you have any ideas about how we could do that well i mean there have been a few solutions there have been things like digital taxes on some of these companies that would that would go into a pot to fund uh local news outlets because what we see is, is the free market approach is just not working it's not and i don't think it's going to start working because it's not just a thing of saying that like okay we'll throw you a bone here, you know, local Iowa newspaper. And, and in your community, you'll show up a little bit higher in people's news feeds on Facebook. Like that is not gonna solve their financial problems because what you've torn out of newspapers are all the things that used to fund newspapers. And that being that like the movie listings, uh, the classifieds, all of the things that used to be 80% of newspapers are gone. Like the news, 
was the sort of add-on to a lot of the things that people would see. And, and those aren't coming back. I mean, you know, it's going to be AutoTrader, it's going to be eBay. So I don't think a free market approach to local journalism is going to work. So there has to be some sort of funding mechanism uh, that allows those outlets to exist. Like in the US, <laughs> this is a, probably a much harder thing to sell maybe than in Europe um, because we tend to be very opposed to, um, you know, government funded news, even if it's behind uh, a pretty clear firewall that would cut them off from having influence. So I, I don't know what the actual solution is, but th there are a lot of proposals out there, um, many of which I think make some sense. And, and, you know, we just have to kind of sift through them and figure out if there's anything that's that is, is practical. Mm. So like we've been talking about these issues in the sort of like having this public conversation for quite a while, like uh, the stuff that I've written about in my book came up three, four years ago when I when I was first starting to look at, at these issues. And and today we've we've essentially done nothing about it. Like the, the EU passed uh the GDPR, the general data protection re uh, regulation. But aside from that, we we've we've done very little. And and I've been trying to work out why that is given that it's such a monstrous part of 21st century life like what is your what are your thoughts uh i think there's two reasons we've been slow to address the problem one is most lawmakers don't understand tech at all um that probably improved a bit over the last four years but when we were having these conversations back in 2016 2017 you were at the point of, of legitimately uh, trying to explain what an algorithm is and, and what a bot is versus a troll. I mean, you're starting from a very basic level there. And for obvious reasons, lawmakers were uncomfortable <laughs> regulating spaces they didn't fully understand themselves. So I think that led to a bit of paralysis. I think the second part is up until about 2014, let's say, there was a sort of utopian view of tech and social media. Uh, and, you know, people looked at the Arab Spring as being where social media was going, where you'd have these sort of democratic uh, activist movements that would be allowed to blossom online. And so there was an effort to really um, allow social media to kind of expand and run on its own because of the great democratic process or, or promise of social media. And then I think third is probably a lot of them were weaponizing social media themselves. So they didn't want to regulate a space that they were using at some level, whether consciously or unconsciously, to manipulate uh, voters. So you had, I think, these three roadblocks that meant that the issue just wasn't addressed seriously in, until a few years ago. The last couple of years, I, I know the US context way more. I mean, you've seen a number of proposals that have come up that because of political partisanship have gone nowhere. Uh, you know, frankly, some, some good, some bad. Uh, but I think there is now an appetite to do something. Now, that's, of course, a little bit dangerous, because when you just say do something that could lead to bad regulation. But my, my expectation would be in the next two to four years, I think we will actually see a bit more robust uh, regulation in this space. Because I think many of those hurdles have been sort of crossed at this point. We sort of crossed the Rubicon into like something has to be done at this point. And like, again, both sides in the US agree on that. They just fundamentally disagree on, on what to do about it. 
But yeah, I mean, I think going back to your question of why haven't we seen any of this happen yet, it, it's it's a combination of those three things, probably many other reasons, including lobbyists and everything else. But I think, part, you know, you look at the early, uh, the early hearings in Capitol Hill and the tech executives just ran circles around lawmakers and made them look frankly, pretty ignorant. And I mean, so I think, I think they that, probably are like, or they were, you, <laughs> right. I don't think they made and, them look like that. They, they actually are. <laughs> correct. I mean, you saw a lot of questions that were just absurd. And I think this was the problem is you got these people and their lobbyists in rooms and, you know, you'd have a, even in the lawmaker is trying to like earnestly address some of these problems and they just had sort of circles run around them and just could throw out tech terms and the you know these various things that like most people don't fully grasp and i think that led to the uh the sort of position of like i don't know what i'm doing here hence i am not going to be as engaged as i perhaps should be but again i think there are there is enough momentum now uh, to get something done. And there are a few, there are a few lawmakers who do understand these issues. Mark Warner, for example, who represents Virginia. Like he actually has a pretty fundamentally sound understanding uh, of the tech space. So we may see some things happen in the next couple of years, which we didn't see in the last four, but I don't know, maybe I'm being too optimistic and giving them too much credit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I still think it's fairly ironic that, that that for the last four years the person probably with the most understanding about how to how to utilize social media was the president who was just using it to like troll like <laughs> but he for some for whatever reason i've heard i've heard many theories on why he was so good at it but he seemed to have this like instinctual understanding of how to get the best or women not the best the biggest reaction from whatever he decided to tweet about. Like he, even though it, I, I, I think it was way more calculated than people think. Um, but it was, it was, uh, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch how the Democrats kind of deal with it. Cause I've seen some, some red states like Florida um, and Texas both talk about like trying to demand freedom of speech be enforced in, like in their state for social media and like i have no idea how that's gonna go because i didn't yeah. even think a country could do it until australia have done it and now a whole bunch uh, now now there's like some some battle going on with australia and facebook and, and news outlets um so yeah it, it, you've also seen some states uh, california for example has, has implemented their own version of gdpr for example so oh really yeah I, I think there's actually going to be more of an appetite by the big tech companies to be regulated because what they don't want are 600 different regulations that are just, I mean, impossible to enforce and to continue to be a sort of functional operation. Mm -hmm. So I think they will push for regulation uh, that remains beneficial to them. And by that, I mean, like, yes, it, it dings some of their business interests, maybe, but it also kind of creates a moat around them because to be able to um, stay on the right side of new reg uh, legislation, it's obviously very expensive. I mean, you need a ton of content moderators, you need a ton of lawyers, all of these things will make it harder for these small and mid-sized uh, social media platforms to compete if like 80% of your workforce 
uh, has to focus on uh, making sure that you are adhering to whatever legislation has now been implemented in, uh, you know, Kazakhstan and Kansas, like that is actually probably a decent thing for the big companies because it makes it hard for, for the competitors to, to stay viable. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I do think, I mean, we've seen, we've seen big tech actually come out and endorse some regulation against big tech. If you're cynical about that, you kind of look at it and say, well, this can be perceived as helping them because it makes it very hard for their competitors uh, to enforce these rules. Yeah, I mean, it was like Facebook are having that big fight with um, with Australia at the minute, but I've seen some people suggesting that all it is doing is using, like they're attempting to like get big tech to back up the institutional kind of legacy media at the expense of um, alternative media who would potentially be actually more critical of, of, of them and that like by partnering or by pushing enough revenue towards like legacy media you can effectively kill independent media or at least their influence so there's a there's there's a lot of battles to be had but um brett i want to thank you for your time it's been a super interesting conversation yeah it's great to join you again not a problem uh do you want to plug anything before we go <laughs> i'll play i'll plug your book for you i'll take my time to plug your book again oh awesome well i'll send you a, i'll send you a, a pdf if you want to have a look at it please do okay awesome well thank you very much Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.